So, some of you are wondering what happened to me. Some of you don't even know who I am. It's been that long, you know. <laughs> Who's he? Yeah. So, September 18th, uh, you know, early after a, kind of a demanding weekend, I came into my office and I played tennis that morning. I had no hint. I walk into my office and, and um, I get a text message and... It's just one more ask, and it's as if my body said, that's it. And uh, we now know it was tachycardia, which in just a matter of seconds, my body, my, my heart rate just, it tripled. It, it, and um, my arms went numb, I couldn't breathe, and I was on the floor of my office, and um, I kind of got through that, and walking out of my office, I had seen Austin come in, and... Uh, it hit me again, and I made it down to the office and, and um, went to the emergency room. Unknowingly, that stress event on my body catalyzed an undiagnosed esophagitis that I had, that I had not been feeling good for a while in my, you know, in this area, and um, it just, it took a month to diagnose that. And uh, so the simplest thing, when you don't pay attention to your body, can become something pretty uh, raucous, and uh, it did with me. But the spiritual journey I've been on, because the Lord, did you notice the words of that song, that the Lord doesn't waste a thing, does he? He doesn't. I'm still amazed at how he'll take one event, and he'll do 17 different things with it. And for me, the spiritual journey I've been on, where I realized the things that, that I was using to prop up my self-worth um, I'm not saying he took those away, but the last few months, those were taken away from me. And uh, the most difficult thing to accept for me is the reality that I got myself into this situation because there were parts of me that still didn't believe the gospel applies to me. That there were parts of me that still believed I have to earn my worth by performing and that's a, hard, that's a hard truth to accept when I've been preaching this for 38 years. And, um, and I, a couple weeks into this, it's two or three weeks into this, I, I'm going through this, uh, I'm, uh, you know, and again, I make it sound like I'm some martyr or something, I'm not. And compared to what many of you have been through, it's actually very minor, but... Um, I'm in the middle of a physical struggle that is, is every day I'm fighting off the feeling of a heart attack, panic attack, it's, it's all this stuff going on in my body. And, uh, but I had a kind of a respite one afternoon, a Tuesday afternoon, and, and I, uh, I'm going to go in, I miss, I miss the staff, you know, I miss, I miss seeing them. And so I come in on a Tuesday and I see all the cars are there, so, you know, everybody will be here and I'll be able to, you know, Say hi to everybody. So I walk in. I go to Rita's office first. She's not in there. Saul's office. Saul's not in there. Carrie and, and Julie, not in there. Jerry's not in there. Jared's not in his office. Krista's not in her office. Eric's not in his office. Kathy's not in her office. Uh, Frank's not in his office. Paul's not in his office. Pete's not in his office. The rapture happened. I've been left behind. I, there's no one. Like I know they're here. Their cars are here. And I go to the end of the hallway, and Austin is in his office. 
And he had seen me that morning, and I was having a terrible time physically that morning. And he, he looked through the window of his door, and he's like, gee, what are you doing here? And I opened the door, and I said, Dad, where is everyone? And he said, Dad, they're in the fours and fives room praying for you right now. And um, the reason I want to tell this is that this is so core to what the depth I'm going to go to today. But in the middle of watching 50 people praying for you, I walk in, and um, some of them heard me come, they heard someone coming in, and uh, they're praying, and it was as if the Lord said, do you see, your, your performance is not your worth. You're not doing your job right now, and they still love you. <laughs> in my, my body, yeah. I mean, my body got to experience the love of God. I am convinced that, I mean, some of the staff actually thought, did you guys arrange this? Did, you, did Austin go get you? And, and you know, we, we didn't. It was just one of those moments where it was the, I had moments where I, you know, I had doubts. And it was as if the Lord said, do you see? And I hope there's someone here today that gets what I'm about to say to you because my journey in the last few months has been that you really don't believe until your whole body believes. You really don't believe until your whole body believes. Now, so many of us, we really, one of the worst things you'll do in your life is you'll sell God short. And so I know some of you guys in particular, when you come to Christ, you, you come with tragically low ambitions. I want, uh, I want some inner peace. I, I want... Um, you know, I want some inspiration in my life. Uh, a lot of guys, I want to cuss less. That's what, that's what I want out of Jesus. I want to cuss less. And so we sell them short. Listen to these words from C.S. Lewis in a, just an unbelievable section in the book that everybody ought to read, Mere Christianity. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and the, stopping the leaks and the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. He is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. He goes on to say, he will make the feeblest and filthy of us into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we, we cannot now imagine, a bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though, of course, on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in, and in some parts very painful, but that is what we are in for. Nothing less. He meant what he said. If this is true, if Romans is true, if the gospel is true, get rid of your low goals. Get rid of your goals because they're not high enough. They're not high enough. 
And, and this is the lesson that I've learned these last few months. Some of you come to Christ and you think he just wants to do a paint job on your rec room. Oh, man. We sell him short, don't we? So we're doing something this month in Christmas season that's unprecedented for us. We're staying with our study of Romans through Christmas. And the reason for that is the implications of Christmas resonated historically, most emphatically and initially in Rome. The baby in that manger eventually brought the Roman Empire to its knees. Eventually the Roman Empire the cult of the Caesars would bow to the lordship of Christ. We can argue whether or not the outcome of that was what we'd have desired, but nonetheless, within a few hundred years, the official religion of the Roman Empire was Christianity. Now, as you've been thinking along, you've been, you know, we're now about a third through Romans. As you've been thinking along with us through this depth of justification by faith, atonement, the free grace of God offered to a repentant person, have you had the thought, what does God want from me? What does God want for me because of this? What does he want? What, what's, what's the end game here? How, how should I respond to this claim? And I could give you dozens of statements in Scripture that summarize what God wants for you. None of them would be better than what Mary said after the angel Gabriel told her, you, teenage girl, are going to be pregnant. And you're going to give birth to the long-awaited Messiah. And if you, if you log this in your mind, Southbrook, if you want to know what does God want me to respond with, when I understand the message of Romans, here it is. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. That's what he's asking for. The message translation translates that, and Mary said, I see it all now. I am the Lord's maid, ready to serve. Let it be with me just as you say. Now what's fascinating about that is we forget this. We know this from other biblical characters that they were chosen and yet they had a choice within that choosing. So it would be like you're drafted, but you still don't have to sign a contract. You could be a free agent. And so we know Mary had a choice. Mary had a choice. She could have said, my body, my choice. But by surrendering to God's will, she was implicitly surrendering her body. Sometimes we miss the obvious. This was a surrender of a teenage girl's body. Now, what we do a lot around here is, is really say, how do you get there? How do you get to the point where you can say, not my will, your will be done? Even if it means surrendering your body. Well, in essence, this is, this is the process that some of you are and have been going through. Agree with the grim diagnosis of the human condition. We saw that in the earlier parts of, of Romans. The diagnosis of the human condition is not pretty. We are so much more sinful than we realize 
because we're not compared to each other. We're compared to the holiness of God. And we are, in the words of Jeremiah, desperately wicked. We, we really are. There is a reality about us that you disconnect us from God and social implications. We can go south so fast in light of yesterday's outcome. I was thinking about the fact that there is a house that is not far from our house on Settlement House Road in Centerville. And this house, you cannot believe how maize and blue it is. I mean, the door is Michigan door. The shutters are maize and blue. They're, 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 I mean, just the yard is just fly, six flags over Settlement House Road, maize and blue. I mean, it's just maize and blue. And every time I go by there, I want to do this. I want to put signs in the yard that say, Ohio State sucks. Ohio is for losers. And just plant, just take it to the next level. Take it to the next level. Because there are fanatical Ohio State fans that would see that and they would just, they would just want to trash that house. <laughs> Isn't that devious? I mean, that's what I think of when I go by there. Okay, we're going to do this? Let's take it to the next level. Now, of course, it'd be a waste of time because they would steal the signs. But anyway. <laughs> so you have your things where you go, man, you disconnect me from God and social implications. I can go deviant so fast it'll make your head spin. So this is essentially is, is, is agreeing with that diagnosis is where it begins. And then, and then it's surrender your pride. Surrender your pride. And that's the whole problem with the human condition is we, no one, we don't want anyone to be the boss of us. I'm my own person. In America, it is on steroids, autonomy. Nobody tells me how to live. And I am going to earn my way. No free lunches. And it just takes an amazing, we want to belong to clubs that not very many people can get in. And this, this Christianity thing is by grace. It takes a repentance and humility and anyone can come. Well, we don't want that. So you have to surrender your pride. And then you receive the crucified and risen Christ. We've been talking about that a lot. But this is what today is about. What many of you don't know is that the fourth step in this getting to where Mary is, is offering your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. Offering your body. And why is this critical? It's because in that culture and in this culture, Platonism was rampant. Plato believed that the body didn't matter because it was made of matter. Flesh, body, bone, skin was evil. And so there were two trains of thought on that. One was, it's evil, so deny it pleasure. And that the ascetics denied the pleasure of the body. You know, just live a life of denial. And then there were those who indulge it. Because it doesn't matter, live how you want. Because it's not your soul, it's your body. And this is mostly American Christianity. Mostly American Christianity say, your body and your soul, they're different, two different entities. And that's where Christianity comes in and says something really radical. It says the sin condition of humanity affects your body, and your body affects the reality of sin in your life. Two natures beat within my breast, the one is foul, the other blessed. The one I love, the one I hate, but the one I feed will dominate. Now, one of the things that messed people up with Jesus is because he came as a spiritual Messiah. He came to give the message that the worst thing in your life is 
the, the number one problem in your life is sin. Remember when Joseph was approached and after he had considered this, Joseph, an angel of the Lord, appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their, what does it say? Sins. He will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is the Greek form of Yeshua, Joshua, which means God saves. God is salvation. This is why Jesus was a stumbling block is because he wasn't a military Messiah. He was a spiritual Messiah who came to give rescue from humanity's number one problem. And that is we are all infected with the sin virus. Many of us know or we've experienced we even have a ministry that we support called Bridget's Path because some babies are born addicted to heroin. They're innocent, but they're born addicted to heroin. Why? Because their mother used. And the, the message, Eric spoke on this last week, we are all infected with a virus that our mother and father, Adam and Eve, passed down to us. And it is that sin virus it is the number one problem. It is the problem in the Middle East right now. It is the problem in your home. It is the problem in your school. We could go on and on. And so one of the, the aspects of the gospel that is so at core to, to you becoming a person who surrenders your body is coming to realize how disastrous and, and deathly sin is and that someone intentionally came to rescue from that came for you. Let's say you're Israeli and your son has been fighting Hamas in Gaza and your son gets taken hostage. But let's say that while he's there, you're able to secure someone to go into the compound while he's being held, an insider. And this person looks exactly like your son. While visiting, they exchange clothing the visitor impersonates him. Your son goes out in freedom as the visitor gets left behind to endure the torture and the abuse and the death. You say, boy, that'd be a, that would be a daring rescue. That would be a tremendous sacrifice. That would be preposterous. That's exactly what Jesus did. Exactly what Jesus did for you. That's what you were worth. It's almost incredible, so much so that it's, that there's no way that could happen, but the message of Romans, the message of the gospel is that you were taken captive. You were a hostage to the sin condition. And he came in your place and said, I'll take the penalty, you go free. So much so that even though your body will experience death, he said, if you believe in me, you'll never really die. You'll never really die. Isn't that amazing? You'll never, you think you're gonna die someday. No, you're not. You're going to be more alive someday than you are right now. That's why this verse is the most, this verse right here is the most Christmas of verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's the most Christmas of verses. And when you get that, when you go, he went into a Hamas compound for me. He did that for me. You begin to start saying, I want to surrender all that I am to this claim. You see, if humanity's greatest need was knowledge, God would have sent an educator. 
If, if humanity's greatest need was wealth, God would have sent an economist. If humanity's greatest need was happiness, God would have sent an entertainer. If humanity's greatest need was peace of mind, God would have sent a psychologist. If humanity's greatest need was justice, God would have sent an attorney. If humanity's greatest need was world peace, God would have sent a sociologist. But your greatest need was sin. That's humanity's greatest problem. And so God sent Yeshua. He sent a savior. So to come to where you go, to get to where Mary was, oh my gosh, this is an audacious ask you're making of me. And to get to where you can go, I'm your servant. Ask me, I'll do it. You have, you have to go through, I agree that I have the need of a savior. I agree that I've got to surrender my pride. I agree that I'm going to receive the risen Christ, the crucified risen, by faith. I accept that when I invite him in to my being, he will do what he said he would do. But then comes this one. How do we do this? How do we get to the place where the audacious claim of the New Testament is that it is about your body, mind, and soul? Not just your mind and soul. It is about your body, to where you offer your body. Well, look at this section that we're at in Romans 6. What shall we say, Paul says? So we, we saw this last week. As, as sin increases, grace increases all the more. So what does God do when you use his grace too much? He gives you more grace. That's what it's saying. And you go, that's, not, that's, that's, a, that's ridiculous. I know. When you understand that, it, it'll break your heart. You, you won't want to take advantage of it. That's the amazing thing. If you've ever been shown grace when you did not deserve it, you know what I'm talking about. And he said, what should we say? Should we go on saying that grace may increase? This was the question of some of the Romans. Like, well, if God's job is to forgive when we sin, the more we sin, the more he forgives. Who doesn't like this arrangement? Let's just go on sinning. And he goes, no. The, the Greek word is meganoita. Is by no means meganoita. It was the strongest word of absolutely not. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? So this means, and in that day, if you were baptized publicly, you were risking your life. So you are accepting this at such a level, you're willing to risk your body's well-being to be baptized publicly that Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord. You are willing to do that? You've died to the old person. There's something that used to be alive in you, not alive in you anymore. We were therefore buried with him in bapti through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now some of you, I know so many people around here have been baptized a second time in their life because they realized the first time they did this, they didn't understand it at a level that they do now, and that's okay. That's okay. That's, all, that's okay. Because now you may hear this today and you go, Hamas hostage, that's what he did? I'm, I'm, I'm going to die. I'm going to die to my old self. The part of me that's fallen, I'm going to die to that. Just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, that's what baptism symbolizes, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. So again, do you believe this? That's where it starts. Do you believe that you have accepted the crucified, risen Christ? For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And it's interesting because a lot of us read that and go, why is it taking so long for me? I know that, 
But why is it taking so long? It is a process. It is a process. It's a gift and a growth. It's an immediate gift, but then it's a growth of slowly dying to that old person because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. This, this is Mary. Mary died to herself when she said yes. Didn't she? Did she are you, do you see that? She died to herself. There is no unwed teenage girl in that culture who wanted to go through this. The scorn, the shame, no way. That's Mary. In the same way, count yourselves, okay? So have you done this? I it begins with faith. I count myself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, you have been given this grace, this new life, this resurrected life, and you can have a new right or a new privilege that the truest thing about you is not your mess-ups, your screw-ups, your low self-worth. That's not the truest thing about In Christ, the truest thing about you is, is you have died and have been risen to a new life. You actually, the Bible goes a step further, and it says we're seated with him in the heavenly realms. We're, we're at his right hand. Spiritually. So it's a big, big claim. And you can have a new right or privilege, but if you do not realize it, you will not utilize it. If I gave you a trust fund that would cure all of your financial problems, if you don't put that trust fund to use, does it change your financial condition? It doesn't. Because you're not putting it to use. You don't trust the trust fund. You don't trust the resources there. And so no wonder that it's exhausting because you're trying to still work in the old way. And you've been given this trust fund. And that's the claim of the gospel. The claim of the gospel is you have been given a new right and a privilege. That's the truest thing about you. If we peeled away all the layers of you, that's what we would find. Have you utilized it because you realize it? It begins there. Dallas Willard said, saints burn way more grace than sinners ever could. What he meant by that was this resource that's been given to us every day, every day we have infinite amount of grace deposited into our account and we have this amazing resource to tap into. For example, for me, what I've learned again is just again, I don't have to just earn my keep all the time. It's about grace. And maybe you, maybe you need to hear that as well that you have at 12.01 every morning, God's mercies are new. His grace is infinite to you. And again, if you're a good old American, that doesn't sound right to you because in America, you only get what you deserve, right? We earn our way. And that's why the gospel is a stumbling block to Americans because it's, it's grace. It's a gift. It's a gift. Look, this is the how. This is the how of number four. Look what he says in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you will obey, you obey its evil desires. Don't let, it, don't let it in there. When you sense that just being selfish in this moment will just build that neural connection of selfishness even more, you do the unselfish thing. Why? Because you want to destroy that old person. You don't let that reign in your body. That's why just sometimes the smallest things begin to make those connections in our mind we're going this direction or we're going that direction. Two natures beat within my breast. The one is foul, the other blessed. The one I love, the one I hate, the one I feed will dominate. 
Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. You can start this journey at number four with your body. God, I give you my feet to go where you want me to go. I give you my hands to give what you want to give. I give you my eyes to see what you want me to see. I give you my ears to hear what you want me to hear. I give you my mouth to say what you want me to say. You, you literally, you can begin with your soul and it'll affect your body, but you can also start with your body. And you begin to surrender the parts of your body as an instrument of righteousness of those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under the law but under grace. You, you don't have to try to earn it anymore. If you were under the law, you'd have to earn it. You would you, there would be condemnation because you're always falling short, but it, it shall no longer have mastery over you. You don't stay away from God because you don't measure up to the law. Nope. You, you connect to God when you fail. Why? Because it's grace now. And when you, when you use too much grace, what does God give? More grace. That's, that's, that's the audacity, the scandal of the gospel. And so here's what I want you to see, Southbrook. We're going to get to this in a couple of months. All of Romans points to this. All of Romans points to, therefore... 11 chapters of the gospel explain the DNA of the gospel. Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to do what? To offer your minds as a living sacrifice to God. It's not what it says, is it? Offer your bodies, because your body matters. Please understand how radical this was in a Roman Greco world that believed the body didn't matter because it was evil. This is radical stuff. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is a, this is a, a, you know, a kind of an oxymoron. Everything in the Bible that's sacrificial is dead. A living sacrifice. Mary became a living sacrifice, didn't she? That's what she became. She became a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In other words, the response to the gospel is to say, how can I experience this in my body because I think Paul knew you do not really believe the gospel until your whole body believes the gospel. Some of you heard me tell this before that, that I remember the first time I did a ropes course with Frank Crockett. Frank is uh, an experiential master and he's done ropes courses. And when you see Frank Crockett on a ropes course, it's like that's what Spider-Man would look like on a ropes course. But I remember the first time we did this back in 1993 and Frank got us up on this height and I was like, whoa, it's a lot higher up here than, than it looks down there. And I remember the first time I had been through all the training, the, the belaying, it was safe, but I had just been through initial training. I hadn't had an experience yet like Frank to where my body believed what my brain said was true. And if you're at a height and you're afraid of heights, and you have fear, does it just happen here? Where does it happen? Where does, all, where does the fear happen? It happens in your body. Why? Because your mind is, your brain is in your head. Your mind is in your whole body. Every cell in your body contains memories, emotions, feelings. Every cell in your body, from head to toe, is your mind, essentially. The, the well-known book now, The Body Keeps the Score. Things, how sin has affected you, other people's sin, your sin, the body keeps the score. This is why Paul says you have to experience it in your body. 
Is this, is this clear to you? You have to begin saying, I offer my body to your grace. Because you, you really don't believe that the ropes course is safe, that grace is safe until your whole body believes it. Let me give you a story that Austin mentioned a book a few weeks ago that I highly recommend. It, he came across it because he was preaching on Romans 5. It's an exposition of Romans 5 called The Deepest Place by Dr. Kurt Thompson. And it's a, it, it was just, I, it was exactly the book I needed. And he tells a lot of stories of his, um, some of his patients. And he tells a story of Korah. This is a little lengthy, but listen to this, listen to this. There is something wrong with me. Cora had been abandoned by her father to her mother when, who, when angry enough, pushed her down a flight of stairs more than one time. On multiple other occasions, she had to withstand the demeaning yelling in which her mother berated her intelligence and physical appearance. It was stunning, and then again, not so, that Cora had become one of the most successful partners at her consulting firm by the age of 30. Talented, unflappable, and quick with a winsome smile, she accelerated up the corporate ladder, fueled by her superior intellect and a will that, that, that for some was a force of nature. And as it turned out, an impenetrable wall she had also constructed that protected her against any true bids for emotional intimacy. A wall, incidentally, that kept her equally safeguarded from any awareness of her interior emotional life. Her unawareness of her interior life did not mean that she was unaware of everything about her life. She was not unaware of the facts of her story. She could cohesively recount the moments of her brutal childhood. She was aware in the abstract that there was such a thing as an emotional life, and she probably had one, but she was closed off. Cora initially came to see me because of panic attacks. She had begun to experience at night waking her from sleep. That I was a follower of Jesus provided some degree of credibility to the process. She too was a believer and expressed that she wanted to see a practitioner who would not dismiss her faith or automatically assume it to be a source of her problem. But neither did she believe that her faith, such as it was, had anything to do with her panic attacks. It never crossed her mind that what passed as her religious beliefs were actually protecting her from her relationship with a God that she was not at peace with. Remember what it said in Romans 5? We now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. She was at war with this God, even in an undeclared war. She did not come for help to address the multiple layers of trauma that she carried around in her mind. And when you see trauma, we're talking about sin. That embodied and relational process of the mind so described in the language of neurobiology. Her assumption was, like many, that she was coming to a Christian psychiatrist in order to diagnose her problem, physical panic, and treat it, presumably, she thought, with medication. For Cora, there's something wrong with me meant that her brain was not working correctly, that her panic was the fire that needed to be put out, and doing so would indicate that her brain was back to normal. Little did she know that her panic was merely her brain doing exactly what it should have been doing, given her state of mind. I got to, uh, I, it's not, I'm not proud to admit this. My body on September 18th did what it was designed to do. That's what it did. 
In all this, Cora was most unaware of her body and how it had become the clearinghouse of her trauma. Her panic was her body's way of sending a signal informing her that she needed help for Cora to be to imagine hope in the midst of her suffering, she needed to become aware of what her body was telling her. As Cora found herself in a more disintegrated state, the notion of grace was inaccessible to her in its fullness because in order for it to become fully real, for her to stand in grace in a way that was beyond just a metaphor, an abstract, ethereal doctrine, the entirety of her mind's various domains required her to experience it in her body. So you can only imagine for me, there were parts of that story, I was, oh my gosh. And so for me, the last few months have been a deeper journey into making sure I do what I didn't do that got me in this fix in the first place, and that is listen to what my body is telling me. And what I would say to you is, is this truth. There is not a day now where I don't begin my day by surrendering my body. And I know you may not grasp the full implications of this, and you, it, it may be, a, I don't know, such a, a neurobiological, spiritual scriptural depth that you go, oh, I'm not sure I grasp this, but I'm telling you, if you just start doing this every day, what I'm about to do with you, you'll be glad you did. And the opening part of a prayer of surrender that I do every day, that I've done for 20 years, took on a whole new meaning. And Kathy's gonna come up here and give you directions on what to do next if this message, especially the story of Cora, hits you today in some way like it hit me. But before we do that, I wanna lead you through how I now begin my day. My this morning at two o'clock when I woke up, and I went back to sleep. Trust me, I haven't been awake since 2 o'clock. But it began with this, all right? And so would you bow your head? And it's a short part of this prayer, but would you say this to yourself with me? My dear Lord Jesus, I come to you now to restore, be restored in you, to renew my place in you, my allegiance to you, and to receive from you all the grace that I will need today. I honor you as my sovereign Lord and I surrender every aspect of my life to you. I give you my body as a living sacrifice. I give you my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength. I give you my spirit. They are yours. Amen.